This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 30. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for that intro. And welcome, everybody, back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 30, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. All right. So it's time for a change. Those of you that are longtime listeners may have noticed that change already in Chuck's intro. The word freelance missing from his normal intro. We're going to expand. It's time to do so. And I hope you don't mind. Basically, for 30 or 29 episodes, we have been navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. But in an effort to talk to more people that we want to talk to without restriction, we are going to navigate the world of recording with a working class perspective. What does that mean? That basically means that the floodgates are open. It's time to talk to everybody because I think the conversations that we can have with different people can influence us in in good ways. And some of these conversations should not be restricted to freelance recording engineers. Um, it's time to open up the gates to studio owners, uh, those that are employed by studios, uh, people that have various roles in the recording world. And I think by doing that, we're going to be better informed. And I think we're going to get a more broad perspective and get, as some say, the so many thousand feet view. Some people like to say the, you know, the 30,000 foot view, basically meaning, you know, high above the earth, taking in that full perspective, that, that concept in general. So that's it. Uh, from this day forward, we are removing the freelance recording element from the podcast and we are opening it up. So if you've got people out there that you think should be on the show, let me know. Send us a message on Facebook or Twitter. We will consider them. We'll definitely look into it and see what their uh, what their background is like and if we feel that they can really bring interesting information to the podcast. Because the podcast is not about ego. It's about information, getting to think about different ways, different behaviors, different ideas that I'm hoping can positively influence your recording life. And you've known that from the beginning, essentially. it's 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 a quest to always be improving the system or the world of recording for yourself, for your community. And that's that's that. So welcome to session 30. And today's guest, I'm really excited about Mr. Bruce Kappen. And some of you out there may say, hey, I know that guy. He worked on such and such record as an engineer, or he mixed my record, or he played pedal steel on my record. That's what some of you may say. Bruce is um, Bruce is a fantastic guy, a uh, a guy who's been at this for quite some time, and who's definitely got a perspective that I really enjoyed sitting down, listening to. I went over to uh, his home studio, which for some home studios mean different things, and Bruce's is a little more elaborate than <laughs> than mine, that's for sure. And uh, sat with Bruce and talked and. Really, really got some great information. So just to kind of, I'm 
sitting here looking at the webpage at uh, brucecappen.com and that's a K-A-P-A, K A P A sorry K A P H A N and Bruce's work goes back pretty far. We're talking into the 70s. You can see names on there that some some you're familiar with, some you're not, like John Lee Hooker for example and American Music Club which he actually was a member of American Music Club. Most of the name brand people that Bruce has worked with uh, he's played pedal steel on their records. For example, Jellyfish on the Spilt Milk record. When he works with uh, Victor Krumenacher from Camper Van Beethoven, he's producing, he's engineering, he's playing pedal steel, he's playing keyboards, he's playing lap steel, he's doing quite a variety of stuff. But let's see, Mark Eitzel. So he's worked with Mark and because, you know, Mark was in American Music Club. He's worked with um, Susanna Hoffs, the Black Crows, um, David Byrne, many, many, many people. I encourage you to go over to brucecappen.com uh, and go check out his discography. I'm getting a uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, rolling the mouse wheel, going up and down the discography list. It's, it's quite extensive. He's also worked on, uh, let's see. Oh yeah. Camper Van Beethoven, Thomas Dolby. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people. So there it is. So let's get on with our interview with Bruce Kappen, and I'll talk to you after that. I know you as recording engineer, pedal steel player, yep. but there's more to it than that, I assume. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's all uh, I am. Yeah, no, two dimensions. Um, <laughs> so tell me, tell me a little bit about, uh, not necessarily your childhood, uh, but like musically, where, where did you start? Did you start as a musician or as a recording engineer? Kind of both. Okay. Um, Basically, I started as a musician, as a child. I was, you know, in school, band. I wanted to play sax, but for one reason or another, I couldn't get my hands on one. But I could afford drumsticks, so I got myself drumsticks. And I, I started as a drummer in, you know, school orchestra, probably in the sixth grade, or maybe even earlier, fourth, fifth, sixth, somewhere around there. I was in bands by the time I was in sixth grade, for whatever reason, I was always that guy who just got how machines worked, you know. So as soon as we could get our hands on a, on a little tape recorder, we would. And I would be the guy that would set up the sessions and engineer them and mix them and all that stuff. So I just sort of gradually evolved right into it. And I, I'd like to say that I have been riding two bicycles ever since I was a kid. And I've had interest in both. Right. And... One has always kind of fed the other, actually. You know, I've had portions of my career where, you know, I've been pretty much full-time player. And then, for instance, I, I, there was a period where I was uh, in the house band at the Saddle Rack in San Jose, which was an enormous nightclub, like, you know, f sat or danced like two, 3,000 people, two stages, mechanical bull, the whole nine yards, kind of Gillies West, right? Um, and I spent four and a half years in the house band there, and we worked a lot. What, what time period is this? That was in the mid-80s. Okay. During that period of time, I was, you know, well, let me backtrack a little bit. I got my first four-track recorder, like a Tascam 40-4. That would have been in the early 70s. So that was reel-to-reel. -reel. That was reel-to-reel, -reel, absolutely, yeah. And I had I lived in a basement in a house in Palo Alto and we, you know, put up the eggshell cartons and the, uh, 
you know, all the, the stuff that, that we did back then when we couldn't afford anything and uh, got ourselves some, some terrible microphones and a terrible mixer and um, made some stuff that, you know, floated our boats at the time. I mean, it was the best we could do. Certainly not hi-fi, but it was a ton of fun. Um, and it very educational. You know, it's like when you come up with the inability to get things to sound how you want them to sound because you're limited by your gear, you end up having to figure out ways to make what you do have musical. And if you kind of extend that uh, or extrapolate that to later in my career, I, I did an album when I was with American Music Club. I did an album as a player with uh, Mitchell Froom producing and Chad Blake engineering. And, you know, there's a guy in Chad Blake who has just mastered the universe of the, the lo-fi approach to things. And it was like so cool because it was like, you know, a lot of the ideas that had kind of been bouncing around in my head since I started recording on lo-fi gear, it was like, oh, wow, this is the, you know, the ultimate extrapolation of those ideas. And it was very cool working with him, very informative. So getting back to playing and, and engineering, um, when I was working in the Saddlerack band, by that time, I had actually gotten my first couple of gigs as an engineer. Um, I worked for a little 8-track studio in Palo Alto and was starting to freelance at Music Annex in Menlo Park, um, which was a really great place to cut my teeth because they had this beautiful vintage classic Neve console with, uh, I think it was 1081 EQ section, gorgeous sounding board, and I had no idea what a you know brilliant piece of gear I was working on, but it was magic because everything just sounded enormous and huge and and like it gave me a chance to sort of realize my hi-fi dreams you know because i'd been working for so long with really crap gear and then suddenly to be working with neumann's and all of these wonderful neve preamps and in reasonably decent sounding rooms with isos and space it was like wow you know it was a really significant thing anyway so i was doing that during the daytime and playing gigs at night and that band was super busy. I was playing 50-50 guitar and pedal steel in that band. And I ended up burning out my left hand, uh, carpal tunnel, like to the extent where I have a lovely uh, 66 Telecaster with action that is about as easy as a guitar could possibly be. I couldn't even hold the strings down on the left on my left hand anymore. And so I had no choice but to stop being a player. I mean, I wasn't, uh, the atmosphere in that band was not such that I could have switched fully to pedal steel. They needed a guitar player who could play pedal steel or just a guitar player, but not just a pedal steel player. So there was an opportunity, uh, a guy that I knew from other circles uh, was opening a music studio, a, a recording studio, and he took a gamble on me. You know, I was, I came referred by the couple of places I'd been working and that was a studio called Dragon Studios in Redwood City. And, uh, the owner, Charlie Albert gave me a shot and we built the studio and we were up and running and our rates were dirt cheap. And, you know, it was like an MCI two inch. And I think we started with an MCI board as well. You know, we were doing reasonably good work. It was like 
it wasn't super highbrow, but it was it was definitely good, strong, real work. And we ended up just getting slammed. We were busy as much as we could be. I mean, I was during there was about a year and a half there where I worked 15 hour days, literally seven days a week. And it nearly put me in the ground. What uh, what time period was that? That would have been like 84, 85, I think, or 85, 86. Okay. Yeah. How old were you then? Um, well, I was born in 55. So, okay. yeah, 30 or thereabouts. You know, I, I got, there was great experience. I really got so much hands-on time, both engineering and producing, and, and really got my... I cut my teeth there. That, mm-hmm. that, that was where I really learned the craft of, of engineering. Um, day in, day out, night in, night out, you know, all the time. And did some really fun projects. I, one, of, one of the things I did there that was really fun was uh, I got to work with John Lee Hooker there. Wow. I was working with just random introduction. I, I met the organ player in his band, a guy named Deacon Jones, the original Deacon Jones, as he would put it. He ended up bringing John Lee in to sing on a couple tracks that were in production for this album. And uh, Buddy Miles sang a half dozen uh, songs on that album. And, you know, it was it was a real treat and it was a really cool project to be involved in. And I did a bunch of rock projects there, too. And I did classical music projects and jazz and blues and, you know, just uh, all over the map. I mean, typical day was, you know get there at nine in the morning and, you know, spend a couple hours on the ground in front of the two inch machine, setting it up and then maybe do a, you know, solo piano vocal thing in the morning and then maybe some narration in the afternoon and, you know, maybe a blues band in the evening or a rock band or whatever. And one of the things that I learned there that was really both puzzling and kind of funny is the sort of compartmentalization that so many musicians feel about what they do versus what other people do. And it's, I realized that it was such a great place for me because I've always been interested in a really wide variety of music. I mean, when I was in my teens, my diet was Ali Akbar Khan and Johann Sebastian Bach and you know, the Bay Area music scene and blues and, you know, so I had always had a really broad outlook, but I would inevitably get, you know, it's like, oh, what are you doing next? You know, oh, you're working on that kind of music. How can you stand working on that kind of music? But for me, it really fed my artistic uh, interest. That's interesting that uh, people would be so, I don't know, maybe it's, I, I think as I was younger, uh, I would have more discrimination towards certain kinds of music or certain artists. And now I'm like, it doesn't matter. I think it was that era as well, you know, because extremely it would be like, you know, working with like a metal band or something like that mm-hmm. or a grunge band who were teenagers, right? So it's like, ah, fuck this, fuck that, you know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> like, fuck everything, you know. This is in the 80s and there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of new technology coming around at that time. Yeah. Drum machines, electronic drums. Yep. You know, Lindrums. Automation. Simmons, automation. Big time. I mean, that that was huge. And in fact, on that Neve console that I worked at at Music Annex, they actually had 
I think it was called a Roland CompuEditor. It was uh, a VCA package that you could pass signals through. Um, and I think it was 16 channels or some such thing where you could, you know, you'd stripe the tape with Simpty and run every pass. You'd like, you know, you'd stripe tracks one and 24 and uh, you'd you'd play the data back from the first take that you'd done, pass it through the machine and re-record it on the opposite channel. And so as you went through your mix and kept doing generation after generation, you'd end up with this delay um, so that by, you know, like you have to be really careful about not working too long on a mix because by the time you were at the end of the process, moves that you'd made that were like, you know, had to be very uh, timely would end up being late. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a headache. But wow. I mean, all the tape-based systems had that feature. I worked on an Otari system that was like that and various different things that I've, you know, kind of flushed from my memory because, <laughs> I mean, when you think about the absolute impeccable, for the most part, automation capability of a modern digital audio workstation, you know, it was primitive back then. You know, you had control over volume and control over mutes, and that was it. And you probably didn't have offline information. At least on the earlier ones, you didn't have any offline capability. That eventually kind of came into play. I never, for whatever reason, mostly money, I never ended up working too much in SSL studios, at least not using SSL automation. I did a couple of projects where I got to that point. But generally speaking, those studios were way out of the league of anything that I could afford or any of the people I worked with could afford. So, uh, you know, like Fantasy, for instance, back in those days, I'd go there and I'd shop a project and it was like, oh, that'll be $3,000 a day back in the 80s, you know. <laughs> and that, you know, now they're selling it for substantially less than that because they have to. And, you know, it's amazing to me how the economy of scale has, you know, fallen on its head because of the proliferation of technology. At that time, charging $3,000 a day was directly, I mean, because they could or because they had to to pay off that SSL? All of the above. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the environment then was that you had major labels supporting acts, um, major labels with a lot of money to throw. They, you know, for every hit that a major label would produce, you know, there'd be a score of misses. Mm -hmm. And you know, the hits generated so much cash that they could afford to just throw, you know, sizable chunks of money at projects that wouldn't succeed. And and I was ultimately uh, the beneficiary of that process, you know, when I joined American Music Club and we got signed to Reprise and Virgin. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, and, and I'm so happy. You know, I, I will die more uh, satisfied having been a part of that, just to get a, a view from that window. I, I forget about it, but I'm reminded by you saying it. One thing that uh, Bruce and I have in common is that we were, at the same time, we were both represented by the same management team. Mm. Uh, I was in a band called Seven Day Diary. Bruce was in American Music Club. <clears throat> and these two gentlemen were our managers. And Seven Day Diary as well was on reprise. So I'm sure a lot of the connections and or deals that were made are, are common 
experience of working with Joe Ciccarelli or, yeah. these, or these managers or being on reprise, I'm sure a lot of that came as a result of these these two guys. Was was Seven Day Diaries, like, did you sign before or after American Music Club? I think we signed after you guys. Right. So the connection with Joe Ciccarelli actually didn't come from those guys. It came from, uh, I, I don't know how the original introduction happened, but Joe mixed our album that came out previous to getting signed, which was Everclear. And he was brought in, I don't remember who brought him in, but so that was when we were still on Alias Records. And so that's where Joe came into the fold. And so that's, I'm sure, where he met Wally and Ross. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because we, I think we got signed to Reprise and then Joe was brought in to have us do uh, an EP. Actually, you know what? We did, we did the EP and then with Joe and then we got then signed got to signed. Reprise. Yeah. And then ultimately they switched us over to Warner Brothers mm. for our for a record after that. So enough about that. But mm. uh, that's a, that's that's a common uh, thing between us. Um, so we and prior to that, just just to highlight, you're you're talking about that kind of thirty thousand foot view of mm-hmm. of experiencing the recording industry at a time when six figure budgets were kind of the norm. Uh, and many of the listeners know that I was in a band prior to Seven Day Diary called The Sextants, and we had uh, been exposed to making records with, you know, $250,000 recording budgets on tape exclusively because Pro Tools didn't exist. Right. Um, and it wasn't until, I don't know, the 90s that I started to hear rumblings of this concept of the DAW. Sure. So, but, um, so while you were in American Music Club, were you still recording and and a- actively as an engineer yeah um some not not a lot uh, the way that our schedule worked and you probably remember this from working with Wally and Ross you had to be ready at a moment's notice to go hop on an airplane um so for instance i mean i literally remember getting phone calls in the morning and saying you have to be on an airplane later that day which meant committing to work, you know, engineering work was really sketchy because, you know, I don't like being the guy that says, yeah, let's work together. And then, you know, at the very last minute I bail, especially when there's money on the line, you know, people have put deposits on studio time or whatever. I don't want to be responsible for hurting people that way. Um, So I didn't get to do a lot. However, my gig after Dragon Studios, um, I, I quit Dragon Studios because I was burning out in a huge way. I mean, I was suffering physically from it, like starting to get, uh, like my hands were cramping at the console. It was that bad. I was just, I was at my wits end there, uh, my physical wits end. But the studio that I had worked for prior to going to Dragon, which was at that time an eight-track, half-inch analog the owner of that studio decided to become a video house. And so he approached me and he said, I'll pay you twice what you're earning right now if you'll uh, learn how to edit video and come do that for me. And since I was just starting to play with uh, American Music Club at that point, the opportunity was brilliant because it was a one-man operation. This guy that ran the business, James Daniels, he was like a marketing guy. And so he would get clients, you know, get projects uh, in the process 
And it was like, you know, corporate clients. And, you know, the, the span of a video project is procure the project, conceptualize the project, write the storyboard for the project, develop animation for the project, record voiceover, uh, record video, and then edit. So it's a very long cycle, and he was a one-man shop, so there wasn't so much work that I couldn't just jump in. I'd go out on the road for a few weeks, and I'd you know kind of be crossing my fingers. I hope he has some work for me when I get back, because I could do it on my own time. Um, so it worked out brilliantly. And I, uh, the only problem was that the person who designed and built his studio didn't really finish it. And this was in the days of analog video. So we were using Betacam um, decks. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into in terms of saying, oh, sure, I'll figure it out. Because in video systems, not only do you have the video signal and the audio signal, but especially in those days, it was critical that you had timing signals. Um, because, you know, technically... There's a, a raster that needs to be drawn, you know, cyclically, and the uh, the the video signal had to get to each device at the same point in time, and so uh, it wasn't a particularly uh, lavish setup that the guy had. Um, so we had to do things on the cheap as much as possible. So I learned that in that environment, you actually have to figure out cable length, and that you time the video signal by virtue of how long a cable is between the the blackburst generator and the the machine that was going to be at the end of the chain what a pain in the ass oh it was unreal and i also had to learn you know the the video editing computer um which was on a pc which i'd never used before and a switcher i i learned an incredible amount and got up and running and we produced you know viable video product so it was a great thing so i ended up going there while i was working with american music club to answer your question and i wasn't able to do a lot of music recording during that period of time because even though i had uh, co-produced and co-engineered the album that was the album that rolling stone reviewed that we subsequently got signed after rolling stone reviewed it as one of the best five albums of 1991. <laughs> um, you know, it was Guns N' Roses, Nirvana, U2, R.E.M., and who? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it was like a shoestring budget, but it was a, you know, it was a good album. It was, I, I don't wouldn't go so far to say it was a great album, but it was, Mark's songwriting was in top form at that point, and I think that that's what the album hung itself on. Even though I had been in the, engineer producers chair for a lot of that record um you know as you well know once you get into that uh echel upper echelon where big money is being spent big names have to be associated with big money and even if the producer and i will name no names here uh, even if the producer doesn't have a clue as to what your music is about and and how you normally go about making it um there's this attitude amongst some of that, uh, you know, group of Hollywood producers that I call the me stamp producer. It's basically where the producer has a sound and whatever artist comes through their doors ends up getting their sound. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, that's that's classic, right? I mean, Phil Spector was probably like the the beginning of that in a certain sense. And everybody does it. And I just feel, in the case of American Music Club, I feel like we got steamrolled um, by that process because what we did was kind of fragile. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't see us as being the commercial entity that they saw us being. And, you know, I mean, fair enough. They dumped a ton of money on us um, and they expected results from that. It's just, I I remember vividly, we were, uh, we had negotiated a deal in the United States with Giant Records, Irving Azoff, and we hadn't signed it yet. And we were, this was when our rocket was zooming skyward uh, because of the Rolling Stone article. And we went off to Europe we ended up signing a deal with Virgin over there. So we had what they call a bifurcated deal. We had two record companies paying for the same album. So our budget was literally twice what it would have been otherwise. But it was licensed, you know, in territories. So Virgin signed us for the rest of the world besides the United States and Canada. And they took us out to an Indian restaurant in London. And um, Of course. Of course. And uh, uh, the BBC Top 40 Countdown was playing on the radio. Uh, and they were piping the radio into this restaurant while we were having this dinner. And I'm hearing song after song go by, and I'm thinking to myself, really? They think that we're going to do that? You know, because our music just wasn't that sort of, it wasn't radio-friendly at that time. I don't know if it ever would have been in history or if it ever will be in the future, but it certainly wasn't then. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so it was just like, hmm, I don't get how this is going to work. And then when we got assigned producers that I felt didn't understand what we were doing, it was like pretty much from the first record we did, I started to feel um, that this was going to be a dead-end street. Kind of an awkward situation because, I mean, you guys have, you know, you had a very unique thing and you were, you know, that unique thing grew legs and, and people became attracted to it and wanted to commercialize it and kind of put you into a system that, wasn't it was really at odds with who you were with certainly who i was yeah and people that um you know i guess doing their jobs but their jobs were once again at odds with really who you guys uh how you operated yeah i mean ultimately you know to be fair any of us who do this kind of work deserve to be paid and expect to be paid and um you know so if if a guy ends up in favor with the record companies and they trust him to deliver product, you know, it's it's kind of predictable to think that you're going to get assigned people who may or may not understand what you're doing. And, you know, it's not that we had no choice in the matter, mm-hmm. but we were given limited choice. And, and certainly one of the choices was not to do it yourself. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, I, let me just put it this way. I was very perturbed by that because I figured if we're good enough to get here, dot, dot, dot. Right. What, yeah. Why, why do you have to just turn over that. the reins entirely to, you know, but, but of course you could say that that was a self-serving attitude on my part, which I think that's kind of what my bandmates thought ultimately. Mm. I could, I could see that. Mm-hmm. I could see why the, I could see all the different perspectives in yeah. that situation. Because they were attracted to the big names too. You know, it's like, oh, we could work with this guy or we could work with that guy and he's done this and that, you know. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, again, it's like not that what American Music Club was doing was so terribly unique that, you know, nobody in the world was capable of 
producing it besides me. I didn't feel that way. I just felt that um, there were certain aspects of what we did, especially the harmonic uh, content of the way that, because Mark wrote on open string tunings, and so there was, harmony was very vague. It, it took hours for us to figure out what the tonal center of a particular passage might be because there were so many, you know, open ringing strings that sort of, well, it could be this or it could be that. And how do we approach it exactly? And once we got into the system, I don't feel that the producers that we worked with ever mind that deeply enough. Um, I think Mitchell, Mitchell mined that territory deeply, but he mined it from his perspective, not from our perspective. Yeah. At least not from my perspective. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with this, but I just, um, and, I, and I'm not sure where this is going to fall in terms of uh, interviews, but uh, I, I interviewed uh, Michael Beinhorn, mm-hmm. and I just read his book. What you're talking about, about a producer not mining deeply enough, that came up uh, numerous times in the book about, you know, his approach is to really go in deep. And I think that an artist that has made it to the point of getting signed by a major label deserves to go in deep. And it's not like Mitchell didn't try. I mean, he came up to San Francisco and spent what was probably a deeply painful month for him with us in rehearsal, yeah, um, tearing the songs apart and putting them back together. But the thing is, is that, you know, let, let's take... You know, if you think about idiom, you know, and there are obviously scores of idioms in music, um, you know, and every idiom has its sub-idioms. But when you have a music that is essentially sort of like skirting idiom, and, and certainly that was my perspective on American Music Club. I mean, my role as... Uh, multi-instrumentalist, but mostly pedal steel player, the way that I looked at my responsibility was to not play pedal steel idiomatically, period. And so that forced me into playing in a way that I had never played before, which was what was exciting to me about it. Um, you know, the the fastest way for me to disappoint myself and my bandmates would have been to play a lick, You know, it was all about finding the song, going as deep as you could into the song, figuring out what the emotional content of the song was and working your way back from that and doing it without uh, pointing to uh, recognizable cultural ties, like with pedal steel, which is like it's it's a nightmare there because, you know, the instrument is so deeply rooted in country and Western as an idiomatic home, uh, that it's really tough to play that instrument and not tickle that nerve in people's ears. You know, it's like the last thing I wanted to hear was, oh, it's that country and Western band, you know, American Music Club. It was, that was completely unacceptable. You meant it as, as a, a different kind of texture than it's traditionally associated Absolutely, with. Absolutely, yeah. I, I've, I viewed myself as basically being uh, an orchestration tool. You know, it was like the string section, basically. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which record it was, and you'll have to remind me which record that uh, Mitchell Froom and Chad Blake got involved. Mercury. I'm a big fan of Chad Blake's. Many people are. 
I've made made it no secret so, on the show that I I would love to have him on this show. He, as we all know, thinks outside the box, or absolutely. at least his behavior is he is truly unique amongst us. Yeah. No. And and I have to say that whereas I have misgivings about our role, the role that Mitchell played in terms of shaping the music sonically, uh, I thought that what Chad was doing was superlative. I mean, not necessarily dead center target for American Music Club, but so interesting that it didn't matter. That's a guy that I would just love to spend days with, seeing how he operates, getting inside his head. And you had that opportunity as a player. I did, yeah. In the music you're working on to do that. Yeah. And which was, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with a few guys of that ilk. Um, Jack Joseph Puig, Mark Needham, Jim Scott. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, and more, um, you know, because of being a player, right? Uh-huh. And, and that's why the Two Bicycles has been such a blessing for me, because what I do on one side informs the other. And so I, you know, I have gotten to be a fly in the wall, fly on the wall on sessions with these amazing, talented people. I mean, you know, I came up in the Bay Area and I sort of came up by my own bootstraps. I mean, I never really uh, studied engineering. I never really had a mentor here. Um, uh, you know, Roger Wiersema at uh, Music Annex uh, enjoyed watching me uh, flail about. <laughs> and, and, and he would answer questions if if he felt like it. And, you know, I'm the poor staff at, at Music Annex had to suffer through their machines being completely misaligned after I'd do my alignments because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, you know, at first. Um, but when I first had my first session in L.A., um, I think my first session down there was playing on the Jellyfish album Spilt Milk mm. um, on a song called Russian Hill. And I mean, Jack Joseph Puig, engineer, uh, Albi Galutin, producer, and and Albi didn't he Saturday Night Fever, Saturday Night Fever, Diana Ross, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. B BGs, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, we're talking, you know, and it was in this studio that was just gorgeous, uh, Schnee Studios in Hollywood, just you know, handmade, beautiful, gorgeous room, and. You know, Jellyfish, I mean, what a talented group of people. And it was just eye-opening, like you wouldn't believe, for me to finally be in an environment where I was surrounded by these, like, absolute masters of their craft. And I started learning, you know, all the things I'd been doing wrong. And I, uh, or I, I, started, I started to understand my limitations and shortcuts in a much more profound way. There's a trend that, that is occurring on the show where I'm talking to really great engineers who've had great experiences with other great engineers. And I always like to ask, like I did with John Congleton and, and his experiences with Steve Albini, what kind of the a few a few sentences of the takeaway of each of these people mm. was. And I'm curious with with Jack Joseph Puig. Well, let, let me move a wider perspective first. Please do. Um, which is that the overriding thing that I have learned, the same thing that I learn every single time I work with a really great engineer, is there is no substitute for hard work, period. Um, I've watched 
each of these guys just, you know, let's take a vocal track, for instance, as, as a prime example of the attention to detail. Um, I won't name the artist, but I was on a project with Mark Needham uh, when and it was early when I had just started to get to know him. And he was, Mark is a, a, a very unique human being. His, his notes that he takes are absolutely illegible as far as I'm concerned. I, I mean, I look at the papers that he's taking notes on and I just can't understand the thing he's saying. But he had this ream of paper on a clipboard, which was his records of the vocal comping that he was doing. He was working on a lead vocal with a really good singer. And they were at take like 125 or something like that. And this was an analog. And back in those days, Mark had uh, one of the earliest disc recorders so that he could actually pull stuff off of the analog tape and manipulate it in digital and then fly it back. And I mean, and I think it was an Akai or something. It wasn't uh, wasn't a computer interface. It was a hard, you know, it was a piece of hardware that had this specific function. And I would just watch him, you know, work. He would run vocals through a fader on the board and just massage phrase by phrase by phrase with a fader. And, and you know, that's relatively easy to do now in digital audio. Doing that with a fader that is a level of commitment that you just can't even begin to understand unless you've been there and done that successfully. Um, and again, so all of them were just incredibly hard workers. So Jack Joseph Puig, uh, the dude has just incredible motive energy. He just, he is like, he's running from the minute that you meet him. I'm, I remember when I first walked into uh, the the studio and he introduced himself, we'd been on the phone, you know, talking about what gear I was going to bring down and this and that. You know, he grabs me by the arm and he, and he, you know, runs me into the room. Here's all the amplifiers we've got. You know, you can choose from one of these. And because, you know, I flew down and they didn't want me to bring an amp down, so I had to use one of theirs. And, you know, and then, you know, it's like we just... He's just a really super energetic guy and obviously has such an amazing concept in his mind about what he wants something to sound like. And part of his magic, I think, is that I'm not sure if it was his wife or not, but he was involved in a vintage gear business somehow or another. So he just had gear, you know, coming from everywhere and running through his fingers. So he always had the opportunity to test and try out uh, anything he wanted to. I mean, I'd, I've worked with him on a number of occasions, and you know, I worked with him on a Black Crows record, and uh, I remember, I think that was at uh, Ocean Way, if I'm not mistaken, the, the semicircular Focusrite console. I could be wrong. My, I don't have a great memory. But he had, in the back of the room, there were these, like, six foot wheeled racks, you know, like telephone company racks, just filled with the most esoteric and weird, you know, gear, lots of vintage stuff. The guy knows how to get sounds to happen. He's he's amazing at that. So Mark Needham, he is one of the craftiest engineers that I know. I mean, I mean that in terms of he practices engineering like it's a craft. Um, he is very 
groove oriented and I mean, he's a drummer, right? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he is a drummer and he's really good with, with getting a good groove. And, uh, and again, I think hard worker is just, he embodies that. He just, he is dogged about getting things to fit together how he wants them to fit together. And then let's see. What about Jim Scott? Jim Scott, I I only uh, he mixed an American Music Club track, so I only got to witness him mixing. Um, again, hard working. Um, just you know, pass after pass after pass after pass, sculpting and sculpting and sculpting, and you know, just moving inch by inch. Right? I mean, that's the way that's the way it gets done. And and again, that's the thing that I brought back with me from my experiences down there is that good work doesn't do itself. You have to, you have to be responsible for it and detail. You know, I, I get so frustrated when I work with a client who can't either can't afford to, or is unwilling to um, pay for having a vocal leveled because it, for me in pop music, and again, this vocal leveling thing, is something I've seen over and over and over again with these various engineers of, you know, careful attention to detail on a phrase by phrase basis. So that like the, what I've taken away and the way that I level vocals at this point is I will choose a phrase, maybe two bars, four bars, something along those lines and loop it. And I just uh, keep playing it back over and over and over and over again, gradually working the volume automation uh, to the extent of, of, dealing with transients and and making them less harsh bringing the pits you know the the low volume areas up because i there is no compressor i've ever used whether it's a plug-in or a hardware comp compressor and i've got some really great compressors that i can work with both uh you know plug-ins and hardware but i don't use them to level a vocal unless my client won't allow me to do what i consider to be proper vocal leveling I mean, it's it's in pop music. It's the star track, right? It's the track around which pretty much everything else is built. It deserves that much attention. So you're talking about when you when you're talking about leveling a vocal, you're talking about literally just instead of putting a compressor on the track and letting the compressor handle the dynamics, you're talking about massaging well, it with a fader. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So when you say a client is unwilling to pay for that. I guess I'm puzzled by that because isn't it just kind of part of the the job in in the mixing process and or or the you know I I have had numerous projects where I've basically been told your budget is this do, okay. do not exceed this budget and so it becomes if I'm in love with the music um then I will draw outside my own box and don't tell my wife this um you know, I'll just do it on my own time because if if I'm if I'm uh, invested in the art, and it's going to break my heart to see all of the good work that we've put in, in conceptualizing and and you know recording tracks and editing and all of the stuff that you have to do to make something be good, to shortcut it in the last ten inches, you know, it's like it just doesn't work for me. You know, and and my ear, uh, I I love compression, used the way I want to use it. I don't love it for making what I consider to be corrections in 
a vocal track, for instance, or in a lead track, or for that matter, in a bass track or whatever. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that compression deals with transients its own way. A look-ahead limiter deals with transients in its own way. We have all these tools uh, that we can use that bear, you know, uh, a particular type of effect. Now, one thing I've worked with that has sort of been a uh, blessing in this regard is a plugin called Wave Rider. Uh, have you heard of this or seen it? Uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, is it? It's. Is that a Waves plugin? No. It's. No. Uh, I forget the the company that makes it, but it's called Wave Rider. And what it does is it it uses the transient information in the track to draw volume automation. And now it's not foolproof, but for instance, if I have a client that says that just has a severe budget and uh, there's no time for me to level a vocal, I I generally tend to go to Wave Rider now rather than just go to a blanket compression limiting kind of scheme because it senses what I was talking about earlier about, you know, dealing not only with the high peaks, but also with bringing up low things. And it's, it's, there's, you know, selectability, there are parameters that you can adjust that help it sense the music that, that you weigh, the way in which you want it to be sensed. I've never used it where I was as satisfied as I would be as if I had leveled it myself. But, you know, if you're talking about 10 minutes versus an hour and a half, which is what you're generally talking about, then it's then it's a solution that I'm willing to accept. That's a level of detail that uh, not everybody, I think, subscribes to uh, that you're talking about. Absolutely and, not. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, But again, I'm informed by the results that I have seen in Hollywood. You know, it's one of the dangerous things, I think, of uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous phenomenon associated with the proliferation of technology because now you can do amazing things in a bedroom or on a phone or in a car or whatever, you know, it's like the, the tools are astonishing, but if you don't have a context to judge what to do with them, and I'm not saying that the Hollywood guys have it right. And that, you know, somebody who's never been to Hollywood or hasn't been around another engineer, I'm not saying that anybody's got it wrong or anybody's got it right, but I'm just saying that for myself, Mm -hmm. having seen and heard what I've seen and heard, at this point in my life, I don't want to do work that I know that I could do better. I, I, I want to do the best work I can do because why bother otherwise? There is something to be said when you have an ecosystem, as I like to call them, a Nashville or, or an L.A., where a lot of people congregate to do work for an industry and the the best ideas don't always rise to the surface. But the, the act of recording gets really flushed out and you get a lot of good ideas that transfer from person to person. It's everybody kind of one-ups one another and gets better. And I don't necessarily think we have that in the Bay Area. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would definitely say that the, um, as far as the, you know, I mean, there is abundant talent in the Bay Area. True. uh, In both production engineering musicians. I mean, and in some ways, you know, I sort of view the Bay Area as being maybe a little bit more creative in some kind of ways, certainly in terms of technology. I mean, you know, all of the current technology that we're using has been pretty much developed here, up to and including like, 
you know, Stanford's artificial intelligence lab, uh, which, you know, is CCRMA, the uh, Center for Computer Research and Music and Acoustics. Um, you know, John Chowning being a professor there and inventing FM synthesis before there was a DX7. I mean, it, there's a long history in the Bay Area of musical technological innovation. Um, and they make great use of it. I mean, Ampex was a Bay Area company, right? Uh, Redwood Di City, right? Digidesign was a Bay Area absolutely, company. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, uh, but all of that aside, the level of uh, craftsmanship and, as you were saying, the sort of like the insider studio knowledge, I mean, the industry there supports, in L.A., supports uh, internships. And, you know, like Joe Ciccarelli talks about Jimmy Iovine, right, and talks about kind of coming up in an environment, right, where, where you were able to learn. And even during the period of time where I was with American Music Club, you know, there were young guys in the studio that were picking up the trade, you know, assistant engineers and that kind of thing. And when, so when you have that type of budget where you can afford, like most of my projects, I'm the producer, I'm the engineer, right? Or I'm, I'm co-producing and I'm the engineer. And that's because we can't afford to hire the counterpart to the producer or the counterpart to the engineer. And we can't afford to hire an assistant engineer. You know, there's just no money there in, in doing uh, independent music. And so, you know, in L.A. where, you know, it might be different now, uh, but I sort of doubt it. You had this steady stream of younger engineers coming up through the ranks, learning from really great engineers and producers how it's done. And so I completely concur with what you're saying. I think that there is a deeper pool there it's, of talent. I just feel like we're more isolated up here yeah. from one another. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're, we're spread out. We are, uh, we don't see each other on a regular basis. We don't encounter this, each other's work on a regular basis. So I think it's, I think that does, that's a global trend though, because one of the byproducts of technology is that it does tend to have the potential at least to isolate because, you know, I can afford to have my own studio where I can work, right? Mm -hmm. And so that beats the hell out of having to come up with, you know, $100 an hour or whatever to work in somebody else's studio. Because, I mean, I've been there. I, you know, I've, I've, I've been in situations where I've had to do that. And there are so many projects that I would never have done if I didn't have this room to work in. Mm -hmm. because I couldn't have afforded to do them. I'd like to talk about this this studio for a bit in terms of, uh, and whatever you're not comfortable answering, that's you can just mm. let me know. What kind of money did you put into this? It was about 80K that, wow. that you know, the, the initial investment. I mean, it's probably more, it's, you know, the plant was about 80K when when we rebuilt the, the, the building. And at the time, you know, it seemed like it was going to be a worthwhile investment, and it has definitely been a good investment over time. You know, thanks to the California real estate market, my wife and I had owned a home previous to the this property, and you know, we had we lucked out. We we doubled our money on that house and gave us a good place to start on this one. You know, so we could move in and and 
make the, the changes because, it, it, you know, it was an investment in my career in a huge way, huge way. Yeah. I mean, all of my solo work, I would never have been able to afford to do that anyplace else. We always go down this path of we talk about money and philosophy of money as it relates to the recording world in the show. So I'm curious about, is there an overarching philosophy uh, that you take with not only uh, yourself and how you deal with money and how it relates to the recording world, but also in how you deal with clients and, and, and your, uh, those that you serve in the music world, whether as a player or as an engineer? Like, do you have a few thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, ultimately, I'm a pragmatist. Um, you know, yeah, sure. Uh, I have been paid outlandishly at times in my life. I, you know, I think the best I ever did was I had a $4,000 week, right? Mm -hmm. And I often work for nothing. You know, it, it, it depends on the project. I mean, you know, if I have a longstanding relationship, a perfect example is my, my work with Victor Krumenacher. He and I have made quite a number of albums together. Our relationship is like 20 years in the making at this point. And Victor's a very realistic and considerate human being. And if he tells me that the budget is X, then I'm going to go out of my way to meet that budget. And if I have to work on my own time, like for instance, on a lot of projects where I'm involved in production and engineering, I don't charge for playing. And simply put, it's like, it's something that I can bring that I enjoy doing and it brings value to the project for the person I'm working with and brings something unique to the project. The reason I sometimes don't charge for playing is, again, I want to be able to do it to my satisfaction. And so rather than say, okay, I will spend one hour on this track and charge you for one hour. At this point in my life, uh, you know, when I was 20, it wasn't that way. When I was 30, it wasn't that way. I needed to make, I needed to maximize earnings out of every minute of my day just to be able to maintain. But, you know, as you grow older, if you have reasonably good luck, which I have had, um, and you can, uh, you know, kind of build up your, uh, your comfort uh, over the course of your life, it's a choice I can make that I'm, I'm invested artistically in this project. I want to make it be the best I can be. If this track takes me four hours, who cares? I'm having fun. I'm doing what I love to do. And the result in the, in the long run will only speak well for me. So, I mean, the bottom line is that when I look back, that album I was talking about earlier, the Deacon Jones record, you know, I was working full-time as an engineer or working, you know, as an engineer and as a musician at night. So I was making my nut every month. And I took that project on because I thought it was going to be cool. And I took it on on spec, right? Mm -hmm. So ever since the beginning of my career, I've done work on spec. I've always done some work on spec. I tend to try to incorporate that with a legal agreement that says, if you do well, then I get paid. And I do that. I've done that frequently. And sometimes I win and sometimes I lose, you know, for projects that don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. But then projects do go someplace sometimes. And, you know, having that legal agreement in place from the get-go protects me and the client I'm working with from confusion later on. Right. So, yeah, I mean, oftentimes you have, at least from my perspective, I don't know how you can work in this business 
without being generous to people Mm -hmm. because it's part of the scene. You know, none of us are like, how many people do you know right now that are making their, making it like a really strong living from this business? From the business of recording or the, or the business of music in general? Both. Well, people do it. It's, it's a, let's just put it this way. It's a difficult thing to make large amounts of money doing this kind of work. I mean, you have to, there's, there has to be two things. In order for music to be highly remunerative, it has to be timely. It has to be happening in the right time frame. And you have to have some decent luck. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be in the right place at the right time and know the right people to help. Because I'll speak for myself. I am, you know, I have faith in my abilities as a musician. I have faith in my abilities as a recording engineer and producer. I have almost no faith in myself as a marketing person mm-hmm. or, you know, and I don't, I, I own my own record company that I put my own stuff out on and the bookkeeping I'm capable of doing, but it is a nightmare, you know, just to, to account for the stuff properly, you know, to, to obey all the laws that you need to obey, to pay royalties to people that have worked on it. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to deal with that part of the business. And so, especially again, as I get older, you know, I value my time more and more and more because there's less and less of it. And I like making stuff happen. I like making music happen. Mm -hmm. You know, I like playing music. I like being in the studio and going through the creative process with other people. And the whole part of the, the money part of it is it's a necessary ingredient in surviving for sure, but it's not the part that excites me about what we do. You know, the part that excites me is making the air vibrate. That's, that's what I like. You mentioned age, you mentioned, you know, as you get older, there's less time. What is your advice to other engineers out there in terms of planning for the future Mm. and retirement? Yeah. Ultimately, you know, I think you have to look at the music business in the same way that you'd have to look at professional athletes. Think of how many people like to play a particular sport. Think of how many people would love to have become a professional athlete and make a serious go of it and and be able to, you know, demand, you know, millions of dollars for your year's worth of work. And then think about the numbers of positions that are available. They're very small. And in the music business, it's no different. Having talent and drive and persistence is an absolute necessity, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. I know so many great players who have just suffered so greatly, you know, who are suffering today because they've never been able to get that last inch you know, into a place where they're getting really highly paid for what they do, but that their talent is just limitless. I mean, I'm, I've got pictures in my mind of people as I'm saying this. So ultimately, you know, you got to follow your heart. You got to be happy, but you have to realize that uh, happiness is not necessarily uh, going to be uh, equatable with comfort. And it, it's just, a, it's a rough, it's a rough business. Uh, for many people, and I'm going to just 
making a giant assumption here that there are people that keep uh, plodding along in it and just don't seem to make any traction. Should those people just hang it up or, or, you know, I think that's so relative because I think that I can't think of any well-known artists who have killed themselves uh, offhand, but I'm sure that there's a long list, right? I think that no matter where you are, the grass is always greener on the other side of that hill. Mm-hmm. Um, when I look in the mirror, I, I think, okay, you've had a couple of lucky breaks along the way, but wouldn't it be cool if dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about that all the time, but I don't dwell on it because ultimately, again, as a function of age, I think, I think I'm taking a little bit more of a Zen uh, look at things as I get older, especially my wife has had some really serious health issues and, you know, there have been a couple of times, especially even within the last few months where it was pretty touch and go whether she was going to survive at all. And so one of the things that I am discovering about myself as my life goes on, and I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by quite a few like-minded people, like to quote John Haynes, a drummer that I work with frequently, you know, He's he's my age. He's sixty years old, and we get on a gig together, and and he's like dancing around before we start playing. I get to play. I get to play. I get to play. Yeah, you know, and that's what it's about. That's what it's about for me. It's I get to do this. I get to create these, you know, air sculptures. I get to sit and study uh, playing a musical instrument that is limitless that I could study 10 hours a day for the rest of my life and never get where I want to be with it. I mean, when you look at the scope of what's going on in the world, all of the poor people who are being inundated by people with guns and, you know, starving and, and, you know, dying of thirst and, you know, uprooted from their homes from natural disasters or man-made disasters. When you look at the big scope of things, how impossibly lucky are we to do what we do. I mean, you know, because it's soul, it's so soul satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, there was a documentary on CNN last weekend about Glenn Campbell, uh, who is losing the battle to Alzheimer's disease. And uh, Cheryl Crow, who I've had the great privilege of tracking for at one point, Cheryl Crow was, had a little interview and her comment was that music changes our molecules. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit, you know, ethereal of a statement to make, but I completely concur. Um, you know, what we do is healing. I'll speak for myself. Being around music heals me. It makes, it makes me healthier. It makes me happier. It feels good. It's, it's a, you know, again, my wife has been through some really dark times. She, she fought breast cancer five years ago. And when she was in the thick of the worst of it, it's a very oppressive environment when you watch somebody suffering that much. But I could come out to my studio and immerse myself in my work and uh, all of that was gone. The music demands that you are in the moment every moment. And, you know, I mean, that's what spiritual, uh, you know, spiritually oriented people strive to find that place. And we get it moment by moment. Hearing you say this and having, I mentioned it earlier, having read uh, 
Beinhorn's book on creativity, I, I think I'm starting to understand, and maybe this is a function of age too. I'm, you know, I'm uh, 15 years younger than you are. I'm just really starting to have a deeper appreciation for it all mm. than I have in the past. I mean, I've always appreciated it. I mean, and you know, I've made it this far that I've stuck it out. But like you said, in, with what's going on in the world, what's always going on in the world, the strife, the poverty, the, the wars, the music can definitely be... Um, Sanctuary. It really can. Yeah. You know, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, John, John Haynes being sort of, you know, a, a sterling example of a person who we both know who seems to be in a place where he is like totally getting that right now. And I don't, I, I, I haven't known him for, you know, a huge long time. I didn't know him when he was a, a young man. Um, I've heard rumors that he was an angry young man and he is anything but that now, you know, he's like Mr. Buddha at this point. And I think that part of that is, is his focus on, on music and, and how amazing it is for him. I want to just extrapolate on that a little bit and make the, make a little bit of a transition to uh, talk of equipment, philosophy of equipment. With that view that you have, and this very Zen view, do you think we really, do you think it's people get too caught up in the minutia of gear choices now, especially given the technologies we have, what's available? Uh, that's an excellent question, and it is an ongoing battle, right? For, for all of us on one, from one point of view or another. I think, you know, that as tool users, we have to aspire to working with tools that do what we want them to do. I have the great luxury of having come up during the analog era, right? Um, when I first started doing this work, there was no such thing as a digital audio workstation. There were you know, pros and cons to working in that environment. One of the pros was that the ever-accelerating rate of the evolution of technology, it was evolving slowly enough at that point of time that, you know, for instance, there was the transition from tube gear to solid-state gear, and that was a slow, relatively slow evolution that had its you know, effect on the way that music was produced and the way it sounded. These days, technology is moving so fast that whereas, you know, in the old days you could buy a piece of gear, put it in a rack, and if you maintained it well and it was well designed, it would last for years and years and years and years. Now with uh, digital audio workstations, you know, Pro Tools is now up to Pro Tools 12. So we're... 12 generations of, of software, essentially, and hardware um, over the course of, what, 20 years, maybe? Something like that. I mean, and the, as the rate of technology evolution increases, which it really is, I mean, there's, you know, just in the last couple of years, there's been like three releases of Pro Tools, right? Mm -hmm. 10, 11, 12, <clears throat> like bang, bang, bang. Every time that happens, some software has to... Some software is not no longer being developed for it and drops off your map, meaning that not only the money that you spent on it is gone, uh, it's vaporware basically, but the investment 
that you put into learning that gear or that software evaporates and you have to invest more time into being able to afford, you know, you know, to work more to get the money to buy the new generation stuff. Then you have to install it, which takes, you know, my last Pro Tools rig took a good eight days of solid effort to get it up and running correctly um, because of the amount of plugins that I have and because of, you know, how much time it takes to to uh, download stuff and, you know, procure it and get authorizations and work out bugs and all this stuff. I mean, so the only thing that I'm having trouble with in this current environment, and I love the tools, don't get me wrong. I, I just, uh, the freedom to be able to think something and be able to do it is just astonishing these days, especially compared to when I started this kind of work. But the amount of time that I have to spend retooling is driving me crazy. Has has always. But I mean, literally, I spend, some days I spend a half a day just working on my tools and not working with my tools. And that drives me crazy because that's not why I'm in this. Mm -hmm. But it's the price of admission for being alive in 2015 and doing this kind of work. So in answer to your question, I don't think that it's good to be preoccupied with the tools because using them is what they're for. But you can't avoid having to spend a good portion of your time. I mean, certainly you should know every piece of gear in your studio up one side and down the other. You should know what every knob and switch does. You should know how it works. Same with software. And so there's, you know, an increasingly large amount of time spent learning, which is a good thing, mm -hmm. but learning is antithetical at times to actually producing. And so... That's another way in which L.A. is brilliant because, generally speaking, what happens in L.A. is you get, like, really young people who are just immersed in the technology, know it like the back of their hand because that's what they've evolved through, working with an older engineer whose ears and concepts are amazingly well-developed. Like, case in point, I, I, I've worked with Doug Sachs for mastering a, mm. few, a few times. But he always had a uh, a young buck in there to deal with everything that he didn't want to deal with. And that's wonderful. But that's a very rare environment in which, you know, that doesn't work for me because I can't afford to hire somebody to do that for me. I have to keep on top of it. I mean, I work with Cutting Edge Audio Group in San Francisco to get a lot of my high-end gear. And fortunately, you know, they're there to... Uh, facilitate and answer questions because they have to stay on top of all that stuff because that's their livelihood. So at least there are people that I can depend on, but, you know, it comes at a, pretty, a fairly steep price, you know, in terms of, you know, hourly rates and this and that. There's, there's no free lunch in that stuff. And so for me personally, I'm usually pretty busy. I usually have a lot of work that I need to get through. And if I'm faced with doing my work or installing software or hardware and I can afford to pay somebody to, to install software or hardware, I'm probably going to go that, that direction just because I have to pick my battles. You say you're not a very good marketer of yourself. No. So where are the majority of your clients coming from these days? It's always been word of mouth for me. I've always believed that, that doing work that people appreciate is the, is the only you know, it's the only key. Networking. Networking is huge. I mean, you know, I, I, if I think of any 
project with which I'm involved, I can retrace how it came to me, mm-hmm. you know, through, through various people that I've known along the way. So doing good work and trying to be a considerate human being while you're doing it, you know, so that you don't piss people off. And I don't know that I've always been successful in that. Uh, it's, it's funny, I, when I was working at Dragon, especially towards the end, I became a pretty grumpy person because I was just so physically used up. And I bumped into a client from that era uh, a few years ago, and he said to me, wow, I didn't know you knew how to smile. And simply, wow. simply because I was so burnt out at that point that I, you know, I wasn't smiling back then. So being a good, a good team player. I mean, you know, as a producer, it's like the guys that I call to come play when I get the opportunity to hire people, you can bet that I'm going to hire the best musicians that I know and I'm going to not hire assholes. I'm going to hire team players, people who uh, are willing to consider other people's ideas and who will not be bent out of shape if an idea of theirs is not the one that wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has there been a single mistake that if I, when I say that, do you think, oh yeah, there was this one time that I did this thing or I acted a certain way and it really taught me a lesson in the end, whether you were wrong or about something or. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I can't think of a specific example, but I can think of a personality issue for me. And that is uh, that, and I think I've, been working my way out of this over the course of my life. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, I just read a really amazing book uh, by Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor called My Stroke of Insight. And I was uh, motivated to read this book. A friend of mine who was aware of my wife's aneurysm suggested that I read it. This, this is a story of, she was 37 years old, a PhD neuroanatomist, working at Harvard, um, just like obviously a brilliant scientist. And one morning she was getting ready for work and she started feeling peculiar. And it took her a while to realize that she was having a stroke. And the stroke was affecting her left hemisphere, which is, you know, our analytical analytical side of our brain. And she was obviously a very left brain person, but she ended up accessing her right hemisphere And she was so enthralled by the experience she was having that she nearly cost herself her own life because rather than getting on the phone and getting, dialing 911, she was like, wow, this is, this is my arm. And, and the border between my arm and the wall is disappearing. I mean, it was just really interesting stuff. The first couple chapters of the book are about brain anatomy. And one of the aspects that she brings up is the part of our brain that's called the limbic system. And it's our uh, reptilian brain, essentially. It's what the, this part of our brain does is that it assigns emotional response to a stimulus from the outside world. So we sense, we see or hear or feel, you know, like somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? And your blood boils. You know, you get you get that rage thing that happens. Well, that's your limbic system at work, assigning an emotional response to an event that has just occurred. And what I learned in this book that was so fascinating is that uh, 
according to her, this impulse, this response that you get, the emotional trigger that happens, which is in a part of your brain that stops developing by the time you reach the age of two, this emotional response lasts 90 seconds and then it's done. So if you are in a road rage, somebody cuts you off and you fly off the handle and you're flipping them off and you're, uh, you know, uh, on their bumper and flashing your brights at them or whatever it is that you do, after 90 seconds, it's actually a choice that we make to continue that behavior. So I can think, uh, especially I, I was on the road with David Byrne for a year and there was a guy in that band that just rubbed me the wrong way. Just to give you an example of the way that I felt he was transgressing civilized boundaries, um, we were rehearsing and there was a track in his, he, he was like the synthesizer sampler guy. And there was a, tr and I was playing pedal steel on this tune. And any non-fixed pitch instrument player, violinist, pedal steel player, whatever, will tell you that the most egregious uh, environment that you can be in is where someone else is out of tune. Because if they're out of tune, then by definition, you are out of tune too. And if you are not able to find pitch, then you can't play well, right? So things have to be in tune for you to be able to do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. So there was a sample of his, and I could just tell that it was inherently out of tune. And so I asked him, hey, could you check the tuning on that sample? And he looked over at me and, and uh, he said, you are not my boss. You cannot tell me what to do. And in my entire life, I've never been in a musical situation where another human being would not address tuning. That's just like music 101, right? It's like if you're not, if you're going to not be an asshole, if somebody thinks you're out of tune, you check your tuning, period. End of story. I do it. You know, people should do it. So I had to go to the boss. I had to say, excuse me, David Byrne. Um, I'm having this little problem with the synthesizer player where one of his patches is out of tune. And for me to play in tune, he needs to tune. So David says, tune it. So I take my tuner over to his station and we look at the tuning and it's 15 cents flat. And he tunes it, you know, and it's better. It's fine. And then a few months down the road, the bass player comes to me one day and he says, he's put that sample back out of tune to see if you'd notice. And so that's the type of behavior that rubs me the wrong way. And so the mistake that I have made over the course, and the, I'm bringing all this together now with the limbic system and this and that, I, let, I have let things like that get under my skin in the past where I just get emotionally like charged and develop a bad attitude towards stuff that's happening around me that I think should not be happening around me. And it, I've let it affect me in the past, whereas I know that I should let it go. Just like, you know, okay, he wants to be an asshole. Let him be an asshole and, you know, fix the problem if you can fix it. And if you can't fix it, you can't fix what you can't fix. Let it go. So that, like I said, that's been part of my personality over the course of my life is that 
when people would do things that pissed me off, I would get into a stew over it. And like I said, I, I think that like if you were to ask guys from American Music Club at, at that era in my life, I was still doing that then. But if you were to ask Victor about it, and I've been working with him for the last 20 years, I don't think he's seen that out of me. And it's because I, you know, I didn't like that part of myself and I worked on it. So when shit like that happens, whether you're cut off in traffic or you have some asshole synthesizer player, yeah. keyboard player that doesn't want to respond to you, um, and the limbic system kicks in and the anger kicks in, yeah. should we just count to 90 and then take a deep breath? Precisely. That's, that's what I learned from that book. That, and it, I think that's one of the most valuable things I've ever learned. And I, I'm sorry to bring it up again, I, and, and Michael's probably going to love this, but in Beinhorn's book, he talks about dealing with difficult artists, and mm. he talks about uh, situations where he's been around artists that fly into a complete rage. Sure. And you're, when that happens, your adrenaline jumps up exponentially. And he said he's learned and advises to take a deep breath, slow your breathing down and disconnect from the situation and observe it and don't play into it. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't get involved with that stuff because fire, uh, makes fire, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, some, someone has to be an adult and let go in, in cases that are, that are spinning out of control. Cause I've, I've been through that same thing too, of, of dealing with artists who are throwing a tantrum, um, you know, for whatever reason, and, you know, it's, it's completely nonproductive. And those are the people that would never, I would never hire back. If I, if I was, you know, obviously when you're working with a band, you're stuck with, you know, whoever it is and their dynamics amongst themselves. But if I'm able to control who comes into my studio by virtue of I'm bringing them in on purpose, that person will never come back because I just don't. I totally believe in positive vibes. Um, management by intimidation or by tantrum or whatever it is, it, it just don't fly for me. It's like, sorry, you know, I'm not going to waste my time being there. Hmm. This is great, Bruce. This is really, really good stuff. We, we explore many topics on, on the, the podcast, but this by far is, is really valuable, I think, in, especially in studio situations. And I mm. think that a lot of people... I, I hope that they uh, get the takeaway from it that I am because I think it's I think it's valuable. So well, thank you. But thank you for being on on the show, and thanks for being my recording engineer and recording us today through this lovely signal chain, <sighs> dual SM7s, and Summit Summit preamp and Shadow Hills compression. Lovely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here. All right, that's it for us today. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks to Bruce for a wonderful interview. Make sure you stay up on your social media with us, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and be sure to tune in next week. We'll have somebody equally as cool. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, 
you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 